we failed. We failed. So it's really appropriate that this episode of the Sense and Signal podcast is about failure because Joda and I really failed with our introduction to this particular episode. Not only was there audio issues, lots of gain, lots of gain, but our banter went on way too long. So I've done us all a favor and truncated it for us. I would have just cut it out, but Joda was wearing a wig and we had to set the context up for why he was wearing a wig on the podcast. Lots of gain, lots of gain. Our banter at the beginning of the episode just went on and on and on and on. So uh, without further ado, here's a truncated version of the introduction and I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> so Sarah and I are definitely, we're this weekend, we've got this 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 event that we're going to and it's called, uh, it's here in Portland, it happens every year. Um, it didn't happen last year or the year before that and it's called a pug. I wonder why. Yep. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I've never gone obviously for obvious reasons. One, I don't own a pug and two, I've been here during the pandemic most of the time. Um, but it's, uh, basically for all those who love their pugs, they get together once a year. Um, it's got crazy people, people who like pugs. Yes. They're, they are a little bit nuts. Crazy people. Yes. Uh, (laughs) yes. Don't let Sarah hear you say that. Uh, but it is it is like they're Burning Man, and so everybody gets dressed up. I they get the pug stoned and let them run around and yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly what happens. So they're yeah. naked. Yes, naked, yes. naked <laughs> high pugs running around a bonfire. Everybody kind of gets together. They dress up, and this year's theme is Stranger Things. It's Stranger Pugs. Yeah, yes, yeah. it's Stranger Pugs. Um, I'm going as Max. Uh, what's her name? Matt, if, if there's, I mean, for those who can't tell, I will be going as Max Mayfield. So I have not spontaneously grown red, luxurious locks. This is a wig, and um, we will and see. It's beautiful. Will... Yes, and it I brings out your softer features. So I hope that was a somewhat amusing experience for you. Now we can get to the meat of the podcast. Meat of the podcast. Failure. So what it. are we talking about today, Joda? Oh, wow. You know what, Dan? Isn't that <laughs> ironic? This week, I think we will be talking about failure. Um, you know, I've talked about, about this podcast. It's going to be meta. <laughs> yes, exactly. This is a uh, and I think it's probably sparked a little bit with our efforts in the podcast and efforts that we've done in our lives and our careers and just by living. And I think you and I both have a different perception of failure, but failure is a is is a loaded term for a lot of people. Um, it can cause grief and strife for some people. It's an emotional response for sure. Um, there's a perceptual response. There's perception aspects to it. There's um, procedural aspects to it. You know, how do you handle failure? Um, and there's been a lot of research around failure. So I'm not going to pretend that this is a area that uh, is lacking in research, but it's an area that, although there's a lot of research, I think because of the nature of it, doesn't get talked about much and i can guarantee you it does not get discussed in organizations oh yeah no it's just kind of like one of our previous episodes on death death it's failure is kind of a taboo subject which is why we're talking about it on this podcast the sense and signal podcast where we tackle all kinds of taboo concepts and, and conversations around leadership and sense making in organizations so if you like it uh like these kinds of conversations, make sure to tap that like button or subscribe. Um, because ultimately right now, this podcast is a failure, right, Joda? <laughs> Joda just liked and subscribed the podcast subscribe to the podcast this morning. Because and despite I've, its failures, I have decided that I think these two guys have something interesting to say. So I've that's my vote of confidence for this. Yeah, we've been doing this podcast. for a couple of months now, and I was like, "What is Joda going to su- actually subscribe?" <laughs> you know, it's you know, honestly, what it was, it wasn't like <laughs> I I I never subscribed to anything. I don't I don't. Ah. It's just not my. I just don't do that. I'm not. I, I I'm technologically speaking i'm still sort of in the 70s you know you you go to a you channel like too and, right and yeah, <laughs> yeah then that's exactly and that's kind of where my head's at sometimes so youtube is just a thing that sends stuff to me and i very rarely interact with it in any real way so yeah. i i do subscribe to a couple of things but yes i am now officially a subscriber to the sense and signal podcast the and so should podcast. you yeah you should subscribe too so there's our pitch but i mean i think uh, like you said, Joda, I think this conversation around failure 
Well, our podcasting efforts speak to this conversation around failure because if we if we had started out wanting to to launch this in a perfect format with everything in place, we never would have probably gotten started. Uh, and as we've talked, well, about if, if we time, accepted, if we weren't if we weren't willing to accept air quotes failure, yes, we never would have launched this thing. Yeah, exactly. You have to accept some level of failure especially in order to engage in experimentation and letting things emerge through the natural course of development. Um, Because I think that's what we've done. I know we've we've used the term agile uh, to talk about, you know, how we're developing this podcast. And I, I think there's something to that where it's been incremental. We've learned, we've had to make adaptations to the technology we're using, what we kind of, um, recordings, website to use, what kind of microphones, cameras, lighting equipment. Um, I've learned how to, that I need to put gel in my hair before we record, things like that. Um, so, so it has been an iterative process where we've produced something, looked at it and said, all right, let's make this adjustment here, there, and just gradually incrementally improve. Agreed. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, uh, so in the spirit of kind of understanding a space, let us make let us make some distinctions about failure. Let, let's explore this before we get into the emotional aspects and maybe perhaps some of the more complicated things. Although the distinctions are probably just as complicated. Dan, you know, like we said, failure comes in all shapes, shapes and forms. There's all ways of framing failure. There's, you know, um, and and that's part of the problem, right? It's, 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 it's hard for companies, organizations to make the failure distinctions. Like what is, what is failure? So Dan, what is failure? What do you think failure is? Mm, well, I think, again, it's a complex, complex question because failure comes in many different forms. Um, and I'm not going to go into the whole science of the five-factor model, which I, is kind of informing some of what I'm going to say. But just briefly, the five-factor model is uh, a psychological model that looks at certain personality traits. And two of those personality traits are really important in terms of failure. One is conscientiousness, and the other one is neuroticism. And I know there's been a lot of research around conscientiousness and neuroticism with people's perceptions of failure. Um, And so I think that's interesting because there is the internal... uh, aspect of it like i i there's certain standards i believe i should be meeting and if i'm not meeting those i'm feeling like a failure then there's the societal aspects like what is society saying is failure and is that imposing itself on my perceptions about how i'm doing in life or with a particular project and then the third point is how am i taking all of that and projecting it onto others um in terms of what are my expectations of others around meeting certain standards? And is that always fair? So I think in that respect, it's very complex when you're talking about failure because you have the internal, the societal, and then what you're, how you're judging or assessing other people. Yeah, that make, that's interesting. And isn't it, isn't it, I mean, you, you, you broke, you, you made three distinctions, you know, but after I take a hit of my joint, I, they all <laughs> seem like the same thing. Like when you say to me, Hey, you know what? I'm having an internal thing. And, and that's an internal reflection. Isn't that internal reflection simply created from the external perceptions? I mean, you're not, you know, I mean, it, it, it isn't, there's a cyclical, cyclical aspect to this, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we, we don't live in isolation for sure. Right. We are products of our society and our environment and our culture and our history. And, all those factors come into play. I, I, I think the research tries to make distinctions so that we can uh, better understand uh, people's responses to, to ideas around perfectionism and failure. Um, I, I do think they, they are interrelated, for sure. Um, and maybe it's, it's a challenge to disaggregate them into different components, but it can help with certain conversations. So. 
No, no, I yeah, I, I'm not discounting anything from that. I just it's inter- I think it's important to make those distinctions because there are, there are breakages. There is the and there is the internal dialogue by which you are self reflective. That that's that's a fact, you know. But it is solely fed by the signals that you're getting in. You know, you you're yeah. like you said, and inversely, there is a reality that people perceive you in a certain way. Um, right. And, and that's going to affect your internal dialogue. Right. That's going to affect. So I, I, I find that interesting. The there. So some of this, some of this conversation we're having is, you know, we, we talked about this, this is derived from this article that I read from um, uh, Harvard, Harvard Business uh, Review. Um, and it's uh, by an, a woman named Amy C. Edmondson. I'm not sure what she does exactly. And she wrote an article called Strategies for Learning from Failure. So I just want to make clear that a lot of the information we're going to be getting from this, um, and if you're really, really interested to do a deep dive, I do recommend reading that article. It's a, it's a, it it's will a very, be in the show notes. Very good article. But she does, she goes about and makes, and I don't know if these are her, her, her discoveries or if she's taking this from someone else. She goes out and about and says there are three types of organizational failures, like specifically, right? Removing the people from it. Like what, what, how do you qualify these failures? And I think that's also an important point is removing the people from it, because I think, when I think about failure, we often think of it in terms of personal failure or people failing. That's right. And often within organizations, it, I'm not going to say that people don't fail or don't. We'll get, yeah, we'll get to that for sure. Yeah. We'll get to that. I'm not going to say that there aren't situations where it's the people who've been put into certain positions that are failing for whatever reason due to competence or, or whatever it might be, neglect or other factors. But I think from a systems thinking approach, it's really important to look at the whole organization because, and not necessarily jump to the person, because I think for the most part, you could make the argument, you can make the argument that people aren't coming into the workplace wanting to fail. They're wanting to succeed. They're getting deriving meaning from their work and they want to succeed. So it's often, I think, you often want to begin by looking at the system and what what is preventing the person from succeeding or the group of people from succeeding if if something's not happening that you want to see happen yeah and you can set the system up for failure right you humans define failure functionally speaking right and so it's important yeah. to recognize that that definition that you get to define what failure means and so her here she Take again, taking the human definitions of failure, she does an interesting approach. She just breaks it down to three, and she says that the first type of failure is is, is known as the preventable failure. Failures in routine, which can be prevented, right? So those are just the ones that you can actually prevent. Uh, then she breaks it. Then she says there's a second one is the, the complexity related. Those are complex operations which can be avoided and can but um, can't be avoided excuse me but can be managed and these are problems that come out of the complexity of the space and then she says that there are problems from the in, their intelligent failures and these failures are the unwanted outcomes um, in research settings they're ex, you know under optimal situations these are expected to some degree right the ones that you the ones you can gain information from um, readily and easily if you're set up for that um, and so those are sort of her objective her, her, her ob- objective viewpoint on the types and breaking them down. Um, Can we get some, do you have a concrete examples of any of those? Um, let's start with like the first one. What was the first one again? Preventable failure. So those are typically ones that uh, most of these can be considered bad. Most preventable failure. Preventables can be considered bad because they're preventable. That's the definition, right? You're not, you don't want that failure to occur. Um, they're complex related and they're really related to uh, an operations aspect. There's um, a way to. So something wasn't done in the procedure or the process that created a situation where you didn't achieve the goals you wanted to achieve or. Yeah, they're derived from like deviance or inattention or even right. lack, a lack of ability, right? Like, Dan, I'm going to have you now perform heart surgery. Well, you're going to fail. Cause you're not a heart surgeon, you know, wasn't your fault. It was my fault. So Sorry. You're dead. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So if there was just like a known commodity and it just, and if you do these things, it works, but then it fails. That would be the, that would be the preventable. Right. Like, so not putting the, uh, the person in the, the position, putting a person who did not have the competencies they needed to succeed in a position into that, role and they're not they're not able to perform those functions 
And so that that part of the organization starts to falter. Yeah, and there's things to learn from those failures, but those are the ones that you typically just don't want to have to have, have happen, right? You're trying to make sure those don't happen. The other one, like we said, is complex failures. Um, a lot of, and it says here that a lot of failures can occur from an uncertainty of work. So when you when it becomes, so the one, that, that first failure is certainty. I know how to get from point A to point B. I think we can agree that there are times in work, there are types of work where there's lots of uncertainty, bad leadership, or perhaps the problem space is super complex and no one's willing to grapple with it correctly. And so you, you, it's, it's unsure how to move forward. So you're just in this unpredictable situation. Um, and the best practice typically is just is to mitigate. You can't, you, you have to admit, again, these are her definitions, you'll have to admit that there's going to be failures and how can you reduce those failures? Again, these are not wanted well, failures, but these are failures that you have to, as a team, as a company come together with accept and figure out how to mitigate those. Right. So, I mean, again, concrete example of that. Um, do you have a, do you have an idea of what, what, so I could wrap my mind around this type of complexity type of failure? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, like I said, I mean, you could have, you could have a situation where, um, you get new management and they're changing all the, all the processes and you're still right. supposed to do your lots job. of uncertainty. You're still supposed to do your job daily and the processes or changes are going to take over six months. So there's clearly reality that you're probably going to be doing things that are not aligned with the new processes. Right. And, and right. the leadership should recognize that it would be unfair for them to come and say, Hey, you messed up. Although it was correct back then, it's not correct anymore. Um, and so it's it's and that's just that's a, that's actually a very weak example, but it's a real example. I, I got one uh, that you just your 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 description just triggered um, an example in my mind. A new software that's being rolled out within the company or organization that is very complex. People don't know how to use. There's inadequate training. There's lots of uncertainty about how to to navigate that software. I'm talking about PeopleSoft. <laughs> um, and and yes. so people soft has come in and wrecked your company or organization uh, and everyone is trying to do the best they can with people soft uh, from Oracle and they can't they can't they fail over and over again because they uh, or they feel like they're failing over and over again because they can't perform basic functions like they used to be able to perform with ease. Yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. And there are, there, there are working conditions where that, that is, for whatever reason, the constant state of affairs. And it's not necessarily, would necessarily be defined as a bad environment. It's just certain spaces are just that way, right? And that kind of leads us into this into the next failure, which is the intelligent failure. And there's a, a gentleman, a, I believe a, 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 a professor at Duke University, whose name is Sim... Sitkin, I believe is his name. And he has coined this a concept called the intelligent failures. He's coined these as, as these frontier failures, right? And what these are, these, these are the failures that where really, I think the com this is the conversation I want to have on some level. This is the thing that's really interesting to me. And these are the failures that get short, that, that get shortchanged all the time. But these are the ones where you want these failures. These are the failures that are meaningful, actually meaningful to you as a company. It could be argued that perhaps preventable failures and, and, and complexity failures can be meaningful too, because you're improving your operational capabilities by having the failures and then, and then coming back and reconvening and figure out what, how not to have that again in a, in a controlled environment. So there is value in those, but again, you'd rather not a failure happen on the conveyor belt with, with these intelligent failures. These are failures that, again, we'll discuss this to people where you want, where you're looking for something, you know, you want information. These should be considered good because they pride valuable new knowledge that can help an organization leap ahead of the competition. That's a quote from her article or a semi quote from her article. Um, the, uh, what is Sim Sitkin says, these, these occur when experimentation is necessary um, and answers are not knowable in advance because this exact situation has not happened before. And your, for your concrete examples, they, they, they list out discovering new drugs, radical new businesses, and innovative products. So thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, I think I'm drawing on my theater background or, and 
drama background and thinking about the idea of happy accidents, like something that's not planned that happens in the process of developing a play or a, a piece of art that wasn't intention, wasn't planned. It's something that just happened. Uh, and then you look at it in retrospect and go, that was a good thing. We learned something from that happy accident. Um, and I think you have to have a mindset for that an openness to being willing to learn from those happy accidents that occur, especially when you're experiment, exper engaging with experimentation. And art making is all about experimentation in, in many respects, um, controlled experimentation in some ways. So uh, being open to those happy accidents, yeah, it's always a good thing and leads to innovation, sure. And you imagine that kind of gets us into another area here. And that's like, what is it? What is it? What are the, what are the impediments to these, to having happy accidents? And, 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 and let's, let's pause on the a notion of happy accidents and, and exploring that a little bit. And let's, what are the, I'm curious, like, what do you, like, what are these impediments? Right. Like, and, and, and one of the big ones is, is the notion of this blame, of blame culture. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's understandable that, that, it's I, I'm going to say blaming people is kind of a reptilian brain thing. Like you need a cause and effect. It's an instant knee jerk reaction or, or something to me, you know, I mean, well, of I, course it's always, it's always emotional first. And right? that's, I think people in leadership, leadership positions and, and even people in within the organization who are maybe not in formal leadership positions. We all need to recognize that, that, that our response always is, is emotional first. And then we rationalize our emotional response. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine if you had a, what, what, what would it, what would, a, what would a theater group that, that is driven by blame culture look like? What would that look like? Oh, it would be, well, I think in any environment it would be a nightmare, but I think especially in a theater environment, it could be a real, a real nightmare. You have to have space for openness to experimentation and then trying things out. Um, it would shut things out, shut down creativity. Um, people would be less likely to take risks, make suggestions, um, especially if they felt like they were going to be ridiculed or um, demeaned for trying something different. Um, and, you know, getting back to the idea of a rehearsal room in, in, in theater, you want to create a set of space, again, for controlled experimentation. You, you can't just improv all over the place you want to have some limits to what you're trying to do but you also at the same time want to find that equilibrium with creating a space where people feel free to try something new uh and not be penalized for it that's right yeah and i i i, I totally agree i mean the blame culture uh it generates a reluctance to to tell the truth right i mean and and to 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 be authentic about a situation, you know, um, resulting in an environment where I'm going to bring back the organization and even, even in theater, right. Where, where failures go unreported and their lessons are lost. Right. So if I am going to, like you said, the reason why it's important in the theater, isn't that you don't want people to rah, rah you. It's, that's not, I mean, that's not necessarily the point you want to, you want people to have constructive criticism against your efforts so that true corrections can be made, right? You don't want to be, Hey, that's the worst thing. Don't ever do that again. You want to have the, 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 the knowledge that people know that you're acting in good faith, no pun intended. Yeah, no, and, for sure. And that, and that you're truly trying to do things and that way you get real and, 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 uh, authentic input and, and dialogue between what's working and, and not working. And if you're in a blame culture, it's going, that's really going to short circuit that, that issue. And, you know, uh, and one of the questions that leaders oftentimes ask around this is to say, if people are not to be blamed for their failures, how can they be expected to be responsible to do their best work? And, that's a, well, I, I, I think that makes an assumption that people don't want to be responsible for for not achieving certain goals or things like that. And, you know, occasionally that might happen. But I think for the most part, people do want to do a good job, right? They do want to, do, to be successful in whatever role they've been placed in. Um, and again, getting back to the systems you know, thinking about what, what's preventing them from, from being successful in the role. I will say, you know, 
getting back to that five factor model and the idea of you know the internal measure of meeting certain standards versus the, the environmental the societal the the organizational cultural um aspect of meeting standard and then standards and then what you're imposing on others uh comes into play because i think there's probably a direct correlation between those core uh, conscientiousness attributes and uh and neuroticism as well so if you're you know if you have certain levels of uh standards that you you expect yourself to meet and then you're imposing them on other people who might be in a different place and may not even be able to achieve the standards that you're imposing on them that could be a very toxic dynamic and i guess you know understanding where people are at wherever they are are in the process of their development because all even people within your organization or on your team are at certain levels of development uh, when you bring in a new employee you cannot expect them to perform at the same level as somebody who's been in the organization for five years right and has a lot of institutional knowledge so uh, you you have to have some flexibility within you know w- what expectations you're imposing on other people um and then to your other point about making and and then finally uh, secondly the neuroticism aspect i think again you asked about how that would play in because they all seem like they're all intertwined but if you are in, a, in an environment where there's a lot of pressure to perform that's going to increase your sense of neuroticism and your anxiety uh, especially if you're predisposed psychologically to high levels of neuroticism any little bit of criticism is going to create again that emotional response that's going to influence your actions and so that's really what a toxic environment is is where the standards are so rigorous or so high that people who are already predisposed to neuroticism that's just going to flare that crap up right um and not lead to the best performance standards and then maybe cause them to again start imposing certain standards on people that are unfair and unrealistic yeah yeah, no, that makes that makes complete sense. And in fact, um, Amy Edmondson, you know, she did, I guess she did some research and she asked leaders around, they said, so because there's this notion of there's failures there and there's blameworthy failures and there's non blameworthy failures. Right. And again, I think we can say, you know, the blameworthy ones are the ones where you're beat. It's a deviant action or you're you weren't paying attention and you, know, you got, you know, that kind of thing. I would be blameworthy um, where she asked she asked leaders like how many how many what percentage of failures in your company do you think are actually blameworthy? And they would say something like two to 5% are actually truly blameworthy because I think as leaders, they realize that systems can set people up oftentimes for failure. Exactly. However, when asked how many of that, um, how many are actually um, uh, treated as blameworthy? And she said they kind of chuckled and would say somewhere between 70 to 90%. So that's a huge disparity. So they recognize that they leverage blame tools way more than they should be leveraged. And I'm and I'm trying to think. I'm trying to rationalize in my head. Like, why would why is that? Why would if they know that it's is it laziness? Is it is it just it's the easiest tool they've got to lever in their mind to be able to make adjustments, even though they know it's not optimal? It's a weird. That's a weird one to me. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean. That is an interesting phenomenon. Um, my initial reaction is to think prescriptively, like, <laughs> um, you know, just from leadership training, like coming in, presuming good intent again with your employees and, and assuming that they're trying to do good work. But I could see in certain cultures and, you know, definitely in, in our, I'm, I'm talking the macro, uh, yeah, macro culture, like it's easier to blame individuals for failure perceived failures uh, than it is systems because systems are harder to change in some sense but people are hard to change too i mean um but it's easier to get rid of somebody and put in a new person than really confront the the underlying systems that you need to alter in an organization that might be causing the failures um and so that's, you know, I think that gets all in the change management too and why change management is often very difficult because systems are really difficult to change um, over time. But I would say, you know, from my vantage point, 
when I'm working with people and so we're not getting the outcome that we want, it's really, we have to get involved into in sense making, which is what this podcast is about and making sense of, all right, let's take this apart and see what's happening here and not necessarily look at the people as much as possible. Sometimes the people are, are, are a factor for sure. Um, but can we look at it first as a systems problem? What is, what's wrong with the system that we've set up that's not helping us achieve the outcomes that we want? And then what can we do to change that system? Yeah, no, I agree. And not to derail this conversation, but uh, taking out of organizations. Well, if we think of government as an organization, I say the same thing oftentimes with, with the kinds of things we see out there for the homeless people. You know, uh, I oftentimes hear people, um, and I feel are, feel be, are, are, insensitive to the homeless problem. There's a serious homeless problem. And so I'll hear these insensitive comments around why don't these people want to work or this and that. And my response is typically there are so many people who are homeless or almost homeless or indigent that at some point in time, it's a systems problem. If you have that many people who are actually homeless, it's not an outlier. It's an actual thing. And so you need to look at the system. And so I think it's, 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 it is, you know, you, you can, it's easy to blame the people. It's just, it's like I said, I feel it's reptilian. You want to, it's, it's almost sweeping under the rug. I feel when you blame people that quickly and easily. Um, and most of the time I well, think. I think and, I, I th and I do, and I own a two points. I want to agree with you on that. Cause getting back to that reptilian part of the brain, that emotional part that responds, you know, we are hardwired to pro we are hardwired to perceive our reality in terms of narratives, right? And so narratives involve people doing things either correctly or not correctly, heroes versus villains, things like that. We're not hardwired to perceive reality as complex systems. And that's really where you have to like pause that reptilian part of your brain and really focus on the systems thinking. And again, I think you're absolutely right with the homelessness question. That is a systems failure that is not a, an individual failure those people out there on the streets and those tents are victims of a system uh that is doing that to them um and and it's a complex naughty naughty thing and yeah and that doesn't say and i'm not saying that they don't have psychological problems they do but we should have services to support folks who have uh, mental illness issues that are causing them to end up out on the street and in these horrible living conditions. We have drug problems, right? How do we solve that as a system? Because it's not, you know, again, where we all have um, predispositions for certain behaviors, including addiction. And addiction is a disease. We recognize it as a disease and that disease is in impacting. And then we have uh, impacting white people are on the street. And then you have, our system with housing in general, right? We have people, we have corporations buying up housing and turning them into B, uh, Airbnbs and uh, other rental type of units. That's limiting the housing supply and that's having an impact. So, you, you know, you have all these different factors contributing to it and you can't blame it on an individual. No, but, but, but yes, no, exactly. You cannot, um, but at the, you know, and the other in the spectrum, you you do need to identify it as a system. So it's a it's a dalliance between all the all the distinctions and parts, right? Um, and and to to take it back from Dan's down with the government perspective that we just heard, uh, I'm not down with the government. I'm just <laughs> I, I'm even more objective than that. I mean, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah, if the yeah. government has the ability to even solve this problem. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I kid. But the uh, um, the the I want to kind of maybe wrap some of this up and from bring it back to an organization and, and the government organizations. And there's a couple of things that the article suggested um, um, can be found in, in a world that is blame culture centric. And I'm going to just kind of read those off and Dan, see, stop me if anything trigger you. One, the results in higher level, high, well, excuse me, higher levels of turnover. Two, yeah. reduced work engagement on productivity. Three, decision escalation, uh, excuse me, decision escalation or continually referring to managers for decision. 
I, I've, I've that's, micro, that's a result of micromanagement. Well, it's not just a no, no. It's where if if it's if there's an unsure if it's unsure about what's supposed to be happening, you're constantly checking in because there's no there's no model. If there's well, no that, model, that's, uh, yeah, I'm saying that's a result of micromanagement that the manager has not given their employees the freedom enough to make autonomous decisions, and that they fear that if they do something. And it ends up wrong that they're going to be penalized. So that's that uh, behavior, I would say, is I, definitely I, tied I, to the culture. There is micromanagement there, but it could also not be micromanagement. You could have a hands-off manager that would have the same problem, where you're in an environment that is uh, that is complex and unsure, and you're not getting signals from your manager as to what your objectives are or how you could be judged as succeeding. So you're going to feel uncertain and un- not very confident about your decisions. Again, so that's be- very complex, right? Because the so I'm just saying you're, you're going to be checking back into your boss because you are unsure. Am I doing the right thing? They're not micromanaging you. In fact, they're probably getting annoyed with you asking them all the time. So I think, I think you can get both ways. The laissez-faire aspect is a real interesting question of fit in the, in the way you're framing it. And I, I mean, fit between the manager and the employee, because the, the laissez-faire approach has negative and positive uh, dimensions to it. So the negative, obviously, is what you're describing. Uh, the, the, the employee feels uncertain because they're not getting enough guidance. They don't know what to do. Well, I'm saying they're not getting enough guidance because the environment is 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 a complex one, is what I'm saying. Right? I'm being very distinct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. not that like. I'm assuming all environments are complex. No, no, they're not though. That's just it. That's the point. They're they're not. There are certain jobs that are don't have a level of complexity. They're actually very straightforward, and you know exactly what you're supposed to do. That so I, said, I, I'm tr- what I'm trying to get at is that sometimes the laissez-faire can be a tool um, to allow that if the manager uses it right or the leader uses it right, that allows people to self-organize and solve problems on their own without too much influence from positional power yeah, within the I, organization. Yeah, I, I am not – that's what I'm saying. I, I, I am not that, – that- that is, I am not suggesting that freedom of choice is a problem. I'm, I'm being very specific. Here. I'm not saying that. I'm just, yeah. I'm just clarifying some of the issues around that laissez-faire approach. Yeah, yeah. And then number it's, it could be negative or positive. That's right. That's right. And I'm just talking about this, in this regard to being a negative ex- example, right? Um, four. Uh, number four was lower levels of organizational performance. Um, five. And remember, this is this is results to blame culture. And that makes sense to me, Lower, because again, to what you said, Dan, if you're a blame culture in in a in a in an acting troupe, you're going to be less likely to try new things. You're going to and 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 so your and and that means your performance is probably actually going to go down. Um, five lower levels of innovation, behaviors, and creativity, totally towards the acting troupe thing. Six reduced levels of job satisfaction, and seven the final reduced levels of responsibility taking. And this and, and blame culture. And again, that's a huge one as well. And that's a large one. People don't want to take ownership because they know that the rewards are not commensurable with the failures in the sense like you're going to be blamed a heck of a lot more for your failures than the rewards you get for any successes you have. So those are yeah. the seven. Well, again, I mean, all of that, I, we can wrap up into a lot of the conversations we've been having over the past few weeks around people making meaning of their work and their and how much self-esteem and, and value personal value they they derive from the work and if people feel like they're blamed for failures or problems and especially again knowing your employees if they have high levels of neuroticism that's going to produce some uh disengagement you know i'm just going to come here do the basics of my job uh, I'm not going to try anything new because it's not going to be appreciated or rewarded. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just going to kind of disappear into the background and exactly and quite quit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I mean, what we're saying, well, I mean, I think what the evidence shows and what we've probably seen in our works is that, I mean, obviously blame, I don't think it's, 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 it's uh, a mystery or unknown that blame culture is negative. I think what's a mystery or unknown is, is that sometimes you don't know if you're in a blame culture um, and it's important to identify that, you know? So 
uh, it's, I it's, don't know. I, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it, you can, uh, like I said, you can know when you're in a blame culture. I'm not saying it, that's, I'm just saying sometimes it's actually difficult is all I'm saying. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just, I'm, uh, yeah. it's yes. And here I agree with you. And yes, I have experienced multiple cultures within the same organization and some where, uh, it is, it was a very much a blame culture and it was coming from certain leaders. Um, and again, generational, I think there were different type, different generation of leaders uh, that tended to behave in that blame culture manner. And that I think you're hopefully seeing a new generation of people, especially with Gen Z, I think coming into more leadership positions and probably millennials following close on our heels, that some of that might change. Um, I don't. I hate to get into generational stuff because I know there's more to it than that. There are psychological factors and there are statistical factors. Like there's going to be, you know, a lot of the blame culture probably does come from that very high levels of conscientiousness and high levels of neuroticism uh, in people's personalities, and that's going to be distributed across that bell curve in uh, probably pretty equal distribute distributions through generations you'd think maybe i'm wrong there man maybe that needs to be studied but i do i mean i do know from that theory like it's not fixed though like conscientiousness does change over time and so you could become more aware of your own maybe extreme levels of per perfectionism that's being driven by your own sense of conscientiousness and be able to try and mitigate that and control that and decrease that, especially if it's having negative effects on your, on your, the people you're with, you're working with. Yeah, no, and that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, well, let's, let's, let's take the opposite discussion now. So we, we, let me, I'm thinking like we've discussed this notion around, um, uh, friction for, uh, against failure. You know, and there's there's other reasons why failure doesn't occur in a company, and good reasons and bad reasons. Um, but let's talk about the opposite, the acceptance of failure. And, and and really, I'd like to talk about parties, Dan. I want to talk. I want to talk about celebration of failure. Hey, you're getting ready to go to a pug party. I am. I am. So, those stoned pugs, the stone naked pugs dancing around a bonfire. Yes. Well, let me add. I mean, like, like licking each other. So, uh, uh -huh. yes, uh, that <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll cut that out. No, uh, so no, I love it when pugs lick each other. Yeah, yeah. pugs lick each other. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so you know, I mean, I think you and I both. I, th I mean, you and I have talked about this before. That that life in general should be embraced, and its unknowns should be celebrated. Um, it, you know, you and I, I think are academics at heart. We love to learn and that's not necessarily true for everybody. And that's, and that's not necessarily a positive. It's just a state of affairs. But I think you and I would also agree that organizations need to have a learning, uh, culture. And we have spoken about this. I mean, uh, you know, we've discussed it with regard to, um, uh, a previous podcast that we did, which was around, um, what's it called? Uh, sense-making. And then the sense making is about really looking. Well, sense making organizations, yeah, sense making organizations, and looking at your organization and and seeing the information that's coming in, collecting information, and making choices on that. So I like to talk. I mean, I I'd like to talk about that for a second. And before we get into, that, I'm going to read off a thing called the failure spectrum. And we, I, we okay. and, and the really reason why I want I want to talk about that are the the final aspects to the spectrum which are the interesting ones for the for for this like celebration of failure so it starts off with the opposite of celebrations celebration so it it goes from i believe well i'll just start at the top so these are the types of failures or i guess um so yeah deviance which is an individual chooses to violate a prescribed process or practice inattention an individual in, inadvertently deviates from a specification lack of ability I think we know what that means. It doesn't have the skills to, to complete the task. Process inadequacy, 
a competent individual adheres to prescribed but faulty incomplete process. That's an interesting one, right? That's where it starts to break down, where you could see you being blamed, and it's not your fault. The system was broken. Task challenge. An individual faces a task too difficult to be executed reliably over time, so like an uh, unrealistic goal. Uh, process complexity. Process composed of many elements break down when it encounters novel interactions. Now we're starting to get into the space, I believe, where parties should start to happen. Uncertainty, a lack of clarity about future events, causes people to take seemingly reasonable actions that reproduce undesired results. Undesired um, hypothesis testing, an experiment con conducted to prove that an idea or design will be succeed or fail, and exploratory testing one of my favorites, an experiment conducted to expand knowledge and investigate a possibility uh, leads to a, an undesired result or maybe even a desired result. So you're reaching out, you're putting out a, a fishing line and those are the failure spectrums. Um, I don't know. I, they, I, I'm, I don't know if it's comprehensive, but all of that makes sense to me uh, as, as the distinctions of failure. Um, but the ones that I'm most interested in are the bottom ones, the last ones, the, the process complexity one, the uncertainty one, the hypothesis one, exploratory testing one. And, and, and I'm going to assert that these are the ones, these are the failures mostly, and, and, and increasingly so as you go down that list, that you want to fail. That as a company, you want to see some failures in there. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I think? yeah, I think in any complex environment, you're going to have failures. I mean, all of those speak to complexity. and um, and if you're not if you're not having failures, you're probably not trying enough things. Right. I mean, it's almost like in an in an environment where you've defined that you. So I I I thought of this quote: Organizations that are willing to admit they don't know are on the path to knowledge recovery. You know, I think that's the first point that organizations need to admit. Not because I, I've been part of so many companies that are so rah-rah that when you don't want to be the skunk in the room saying, uh, I, uh, this doesn't make sense. Or the emperor has no so like toxic positivity, cor corporate culture, total toxic positivity, right? It makes it really hard to dissent. It makes it really hard. It's, 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 a it's, it can, it can really thwart the ability for people to really talk truth and it happens. all the time. Yeah. Cause they don't want to hear it. And then you're, they're all looking at you like, what's Joda's problem? And why is he always such a downer in that red wig? That's right. That's right. And he should be happy. Most, and the <laughs> like fact us. of the matter is most, most organizations treat failure as something to completely avoid in all circumstances. And that's not true. You know, I mean, that really. No, no. Well, getting back to the rehearsal room metaphor, I mean, not every experiment you take is as gonna be good right you're gonna you're gonna make some choices as an actor or performer that you, you in the moment felt like oh, let's, let's try this right i'm gonna try falling out of my chair when i deliver this line or something like that and then the director says you know like the idea didn't quite work for the the this particular beat let's try something else give me something different you know and then you continue that experimentation process until you land on something that kind of works and, and fits the, the tone or mood or whatever you're trying to build in that particular instance. And I think the same is true in organizations when you're building products or, or um, programs, you, you launch it, you see how it works, there are gonna be some tweaks you need to make and you change it and it organically evolves over time. And that's kind of like how I like to work is organic incremental improvements. Because uh, I believe it, you know, they always end up stronger and more resilient and more sustainable over time uh, than something you're trying to impose on agreed on the world. No, agreed. Agreed. You know, and I think that, that uh, a organizations need to develop a tolerance for failure because I mean, it's because it's, they will become more successful when they, when they, or learn to extract knowledge from those failures. Now, if you're not going to extract knowledge from those failures, then you're going to have to not ever fail. And that's what, that's that pressure. That's again, it goes back to that sense making thing. If you don't have systems set up, if you don't have a culture of discovery, acceptance of failure, but also of measuring, remember ABCD, always be collecting data, then you will be under the imperative of do not fail because you're never learning. 
You never, you, you fail. You didn't, you don't know why you failed. You just move again forward. So it is really important that in these, in this world that you actually have, or in it, to, to succeed, you actually want, accept failure, love failure, because you're not failing as long as you're collecting data. Again, we are, I'm very specifically leveraging these, those bottom four things uh, of, of the failure spectrum, uncertainty, hypothesis, and exploratory testing. Those things, and then when you're in that space, you should come to embrace your failure. Yeah, and I think well, that, because all those also, in addition to complexity, also all speak to the scientific method. And, you know, the scientific method's all about discovery and mm-hmm. failure and proving the null A hypothesis. And, yeah, absolutely. Like this, this, this thing that you're doing is actually having no impact and we need to recognize it right um that way you don't spend more money going down that path i mean i can't tell you how many times i've heard people say i only want to know what to do not not what not not to tell me what not to do that is that again that's that 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 avoidance of understanding of failure you want to know what not to do so you don't go down that path you're able to you're actually reducing your choices to to the optimal choices when you start to wean away or weed away the bad ideas and and i've i've discovered that in a world in the modern day leadership where where um it's it's really imperative that leaders are decisive decision makers and they're and they're they are uh, rewarded for that kind of just sort of making directional choices that it's really difficult for them to take a pause and reflect and kind of ponder and scratch their chin for a second. That is not reflected in their bonuses at all. Well, yeah. And I think, again, that comes down back to the issue of complexity and simple, you know, systems. When you're dealing with a a simple problem or simple situation or even a complicated one, it's easier to make easier to make those decisive decisions because you probably have the institutional knowledge, the experience to make a really strong informed decision about how to react in a certain instance. Whereas if you're in a complex environment, the idea of complexity is that there's so many variables, you are in a place of uncertainty. So it's harder. You have to be open to probing and experimenting and failing as as part of just being in that type of environment. Yeah, no, agreed. Yeah. And so and I, I will say the one thing I keep thinking about, Joda, as we have this conversation, though, is consequences of failure and how that and I'm, and I'm not talking just interpersonal or organizational or even internal consequences of failure. I'm thinking like, if I'm always thinking of this idea of a neurotic organization, and it's cre- being cr- turned into a neurotic organization, because it is on the precipice of true organizational failure. Like it's going to shut down and something has to be done to turn the tides. And, and, and how do you deal with that? With that? I mean, it's a whole different episode, but I think it also speaks to this idea of failure too. Like, cause I could see organizations like that behaving in very erratic, uh, uh, reptilian ways in a sense you know um because they don't have time to process the the complexity of the environment that they're in and they're they're, all the alarms are ringing around them saying you're going to perish soon if you don't fix something and yes obviously right we're not there there are reasons not to fail there are but one can argue if you're not collecting data in a exploratory required space then you are failing. And literally, I don't, I'm not even being cheeky. If you're not failing no, right no, here, it's like, true. We always, yeah. then you're failing because you're, you're not going to succeed. So you are failing by not collecting the data. So you really have to ask yourselves, it, it, those are just business. But what data to collect is also an important question too. Oh, no, of course. You, you need space. If you, there could be situations that are so untenable that you're just might not even succeed because the amount of data you need to collect. Like if I give you 10 bucks right now and say, Hey, I'm gonna give you 10 bucks to do research um, to figure out how to get us uh, humans to Pluto. And here's 10 bucks. You can start, you don't have enough resources to make that happen. There's you can do explore your failure is going to stay a failure because there's, you just don't have the resources. So well, I'm going to give you an again, going back to a concrete example of this. Um, within the data collecting and sense making and and uh failure 
domains. So in higher education, you know, we're all obviously having enrollment challenges with students, you know, not enrolling, uh, not coming back to school after after the pandemic. Um, and some of that's larger trends nationally, so, you know, that have been ha- occurring historically over, t- over the past decade. And then, you know, there's COVID just compounding the situation. And when you're collecting data on it, you know, again, I sometimes see people going to the easy, the low-hanging fruit, like technical things, and what can we do with the, to correct this technical issue, and having a harder time wrapping their minds around the bigger cultural points that might be impacting it. And again, going back to the question of, well, why do we blame the people versus the system when we're trying to tackle fear? It's easier to blame the person rather than the system. And it's easier to solve a technical problem than it is to grapple with oh, yeah. the complexity of a cultural one. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, that's, and, and you'll be rewarded for grappling with that problem most likely than actually dealing. And there's anecdotes, not anecdotes, there's story after story around that, you know, of, of being rewarded for the wrong behavior, but it's, it's just perceived as being the right behavior in the organization that you're in. It's yeah, because I would argue the technical stuff might help help move the dial a little bit, and but the cultural stuff is what's going to move the dial in a major way. Yeah, and sometimes and the technical stuff is easier to fix often oh, yeah. uh, than the cultural stuff. Yeah, and again, you're going to see stuff, and you'll be able to then go back and report. And that's one of the things that are considered good failure processes is getting one person on a thing on a on a problem, tell us why it failed, re out report, and send it out to everybody. And that is just not the way to handle that stuff. In fact, going back to the party thing, Eli Lilly actually set up years ago. They have a thing called this is awesome failure parties. What a way to embrace failure. They have these failure parties and they collect all the failed experiments or projects, bring everybody together in one room and shoot them all. No, just kidding. They, and they, and they actually drink themselves. Into, <laughs> they drink themselves into oblivion and have a good time. They reflect on what they did. They reflect on how they failed. They cross pollinate their, their minor successes that probably happened, but the failures, what they learned. And it's a great way for, and, and it's usually a meeting where kickoffs of new projects occur. So it's a, in the, they realize that again in a world where you're trying to really break new ground there is no such thing as failure unless you've run out of money which is a possibility and even then you probably if you're know what you're doing you'll be able to raise more money someplace else we've seen that um or someone dies along the way that's probably a failure um but but for the most part in the exploratory world those are uh wins wins All, all that information is win and it's important, the idea of calling something trial, what is it, trial and error, is a misnomer. We should probably get the word away from the word of error because there are, it assumes a, an expected outcome when you say error. It should just be trial and information because that's what you're trying to collect. I like that. You know, and you're, and you're actually collecting data. And so there isn't going to be a failure in that. Now, you might have a, a hypothesis that you're, you go in that's going to come out wrong. And historically, you know, you're like, oh, that hypothesis is wrong. You failed. No, scientists don't think that way unless they got funding from the federal government and they, it, needs to, it needs to, you know, pan out so they can get their billion dollars. But pure science doesn't think that way, you know. And so it's really important that, you, that, that companies have a strong um, – uh, openness to to this concept of experimenting and failure, and there are five possible five approaches to to, the, to help companies do that. And I'm going to read them off real quick, Dan. One is you want to make sure you frame your work accurately. You want to embrace the messenger. We know that we oftentimes organizations do shoot the messenger. Again, going back to that thing, like where the person goes, "Oh, I got some bad information here," and everybody kind of looks at you badly, and is like, "Oh, never mind, it wasn't that bad." Worst employee of the year. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and what's, what usually happens when you do that is like, "Well, why is it? Why that's your? You know, it's like, why is it bad? Why didn't you fix that already or something?" You know, it, it becomes really, really toxic sometimes in certain environments um ignore three acknowledge yeah when, when, when the question should be why didn't you fix that what did you learn from that right should it, be the question that's right exactly what did you learn from that or what can we learn from it or let's let's now learn from that or something right 
three, acknowledge the limits of us. Of just acknowledge them. That, that's a real big one because oftentimes, again, in these rah-rah cultures, there are no limits. It's to the sky and beyond. No, there's limits. Um, invite participation. So it's really important to get um, uh, interdisciplinary approaches to, 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 to these processes and set boundaries and hold people accountable for sure. You do want to set these boundaries. You do want to hold people accountable, but that lays the canvas work. Um, as long as everything else is fair, you're going to get most likely good results. Nice. So I think you're going to start a trend here, Joda, or maybe I can, I, I foresee multiple new trends sweeping across the United States and the Western Europe and Come on my hair. My oh, oh, maybe three so the hair, the hairstyle, I think hug parties, you know, stoned pugs, uh, dancing around bonfires, stone naked pugs dancing around bonfires. I think yes. that's going to be a thing. Yeah. Yes. And, and then, you know, Failure parties. We should have failure and parties. Three. Yes. Actually, maybe all three. We'll merge them all. Let us set that up. Instead of mortified, remember that show, that reading thing, mortified? We'll have a failure party uh-huh. version. Organization, failed organizations come together and read stories about failed programs. And we'll, we'll it'll, it'll travel to the United States. And what they learned about them. That would be a good episode topic, actually. I think you're right. I like that. All right. Well, but I am done more footage from the pugs dancing stoned. And- <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, well, Dan, I'm I'm talked out. What are you? Yeah, well, I think we solved the world's problems once again, Joda, as we once always do on the again. Sense and Signal podcast. Again. Uh, we are uh, going to be recording a great episode, I think, tomorrow, which we'll post later in the week, too, with um, on Psychometrics with a guest. Um, yeah, I'm excited about yeah. that one. That's going to be a good one. Uh, Zoe, what's her last name? Zoe. Uh, Fragu. Fragu. And she, yep, we're going to talk about some very interesting things. She's out of Greece. And uh, look forward to that one, Dan. Yeah. We're, so we're going to start having some more guests on the show. And um, looking forward to that. And uh, help continue extend our conversations around sense making and leadership and organizational change and all those wonderful topics that we're tackling in this podcast. So, uh, you know, uh, if you like us, like the like an episode and even do like Joda did this morning and subscribe. Take care, everybody. Rock on, everyone. Bye. <laughs> oh my god.